0: Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And if you don't have one, there are Bibles, I believe they're scattered throughout the seating area this morning, uh, that we would love for you to take, to use this morning, but then also to take with you uh, if you don't own a copy. It would be our gift to you. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We have been walking through this letter since the beginning of the year. And I don't know about you, you, this is probably... Not something you've been thinking about, but ever since the very beginning of our series, I have been, at least partly, dreading this week. (laughs) This week, we come to one of the most difficult passages in the entire letter, to what I've heard labeled among the most disputed passages in the entire New Testament. What we come to is a warning that's somber and unflinching, that's stark in its language, and it's not a stretch to say that this warning is terrifying. If you found Hebrews chapter 6, please stand with me now as we read from verse 4, and we'll read all the way through verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, And produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This passage raises all sorts of questions. Who is this passage meant for? What is it exactly that's being warned against? What is it that makes restoration or repentance impossible for those who are guilty in the way this warning describes? Maybe the most important question that we ask, could I be guilty of this sin right now and not know about it? I want to unpack this challenging text in three steps. Those steps are listed for you on your worship guide if you want to follow along. I want to look first at the details. We're just going to walk through this passage verse by verse. It's, got, it's confusing, all right? We're going to put that on the table, and we're going to do our best to try to uncover some meaning here together. And, and what we're after in that first section is to come to a sense of the nature of this warning. What is the warning actually saying? Then The next step, I think, is the most important step for us. I think we have to understand the purpose of the warning. The purpose of the warning. Why was it given? Because actually understanding something of the nature of the warning is going to require us to get underneath its purpose, what the author was going for. That's the second step. We'll take another pass over the text in step two. And then the last step is the effect of the warning. What is it supposed to do in us? What's its effect in us supposed to be? What are we supposed to make of it, and how are we supposed to use it in our lives as Christians to follow Jesus more faithfully? That's the question that we want to answer at the end. That's our three steps. I hope that's clear, because that may be the only thing that's clear. Now we dive in. What is the nature of this warning? Let's walk through the details together really quickly and hopefully, hopefully clearly. The first thing you got to notice is that there's one main sentence that connects all of these parts. There's really one sentence at the heart of it. It starts out in verse 4 with the phrase, for it is impossible. Then the next verses talk about who it's impossible for. And then in verse 6, the sentence picks up. So the main sentence starts out, for it is impossible. And then the, the, the conclusion of it is in verse 6, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's the essence of this warning. It's impossible for someone to come back home, so to speak, to repent. The warning is that those who fall away from Jesus will find judgment, that you can become so hardened against him that there's no turning back. That much, I think, is simple enough to understand here. The real questions come in when we ask, who is it meant for? Who is it that's guilty or could be guilty? of this sin that there's no turning back from? Walk with me through the details that answer that question. In verse 4 all the way to the beginning of verse 6, we get this string of clauses talking about this this person, things that that are true of them, things that they have experienced that then make it impossible for them to return once they have fallen away from Jesus. So, So look at them with me one at a time. The first one is that they've been enlightened. That's a phrase that we're familiar with in the New Testament. It's usually that's used for conversion. It's because one of the ways that the New Testament pictures our, our hearts apart from Jesus is that they're dark. They're, they're, they can't see. They don't understand. So one of the ways of understanding conversion is an enlightenment, a coming to understand, a new, a new light of truth that gets shown into dark hearts and changes them. Now they get it. So these people, it seems like, have been enlightened. If we understand that term in light of the way that it gets used more in the New Testament, it seems like they've experienced something like conversion. The next detail is that they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the heavenly gift. And this is kind of similar to enlightenment. It's a sense experience, right? To taste. They've they've sampled the gift of God that we assume can only mean a taste of the goodness of the gospel, of the work of God's Spirit in them. They've tasted God's gifts to them, his good news for them. The next one's even harder to swallow. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. and We understand that, that the, the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, is the one that's responsible for applying the things Jesus did for us on the cross. He takes the work of Christ and gives it to us by coming into us and changing us, transforming what we're like. That's what the Spirit does. He makes us like Jesus. They've shared in the Holy Spirit somehow. It's the Spirit that is the primary transforming agent. He gives us gifts to make us holy, the power to fight sin and to love what's good, and they have shared in this somehow. Last detail, they have tasted the goodness of God's Word And the powers of the age. Again, since experience, there's something about God's Word, the Gospel, that has come to them, and they have seen it as a beautiful thing. They have not turned against it, but they have tasted of its goodness, and they have seen miracles that testify to its truthfulness. We've seen that phrase already in Hebrews, back in chapter 2, when he was warning his readers to hold on to Jesus, to consider all the things that they had seen in their own experience that prove Jesus is who he says he is. He cites powers of the age to come, miracles, signs, and wonders. These people have seen that and tasted them. Now, what's the weight, the, the, the sort of full effect of all these details? I don't see how we can understand these descriptions as anything but related to true Christians to those who have seen the beginnings of God's salvation at work in their lives and have truly repented and believed on Jesus. One of the most common ways of understanding this passage is to suggest that this is talking about people who have looked like true Christians. (laughs) They have have been part of the community and and sort of tasted of it in that way, that they were around Christians and seemed to be buying into Christianity, but then fell away and and showed that they weren't ever really part of Christianity. Some people uh, apply that understanding to this text. And it's undeniably true that other passages do talk about that kind of person. First John chapter 2, for example, talks about someone who goes out from us, and John says that because they went out from us, they showed that they were never really of us. They're leaving, they're falling away, prove that they didn't really belong. But that just isn't what this passage says. That seems a stretch here. Moving on in the text, there's one, there's one more piece to the puzzle. And what we've seen so far is what is the basic warning? It's impossible for those to return to a repentance who have fallen away from Jesus. And the those are those who have tasted and have been enlightened and have had the Holy Spirit and on down the line. So now the last piece is here's why they can't ever come back. Here's why repentance is impossible. Here's the nature of their offense. That's verse six. Since, here we have a reasoning, right? It's true that they can't come back since they are crucifying once again the son of god to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What's that about? I think I think this. I think that they're crucifying him again in the sense that they are aligning themselves with those who killed Jesus. They're staking their identity to that category rather than to what Christ did. They are saying in essence, it was right that they killed him. He was a fraud an imposter, he deserved to die. They're crucifying him again in their hearts because they are wanting to see him killed. That, that's what that phrase means, I believe. The next phrase is that they are holding him up to contempt. I think we can see how that works too. It's shameful for them to say to crucify Christ again in their hearts because what they're essentially saying is that he was an imposter. He was not who he claimed to be. They are saying the same things that was said about Jesus when Jesus was being killed. Think about what the soldiers were saying. They're mocking him. Oh, you say you're the son of God? Come on down off the cross, why don't you? You have these powers that you're claiming to have, that, that kind of authority? Why don't you just come down? Why don't you just kill us? They're mocking him, claiming that he isn't who he said he was. And that's exactly what these believers would have done if that's who's being talked about here. When they leave Jesus, they're saying Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. He can't deliver on his promises. And it's so much more shameful for someone who had been part of the community to say that about Christ, than someone who never really even heard of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus that's true of someone who's never experienced Christianity is a rejection of ignorance. This rejection of Jesus is one that's from an insider who has tasted and then found him not to be true. So it's to hold him up to contempt, and there's no coming back from that. That's what this warning seems to say. Now, That seems to be the nature of the warning. I think the key to us understanding this difficult passage is the purpose of the warning. The purpose of the warning. Here's the thing. This is one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. We've already said that. And the reason that it's so controversial is that we all bring questions to it that it isn't trying to answer. The most important question that most folks bring to this passage is... Is it possible for someone who's truly converted, a genuine Christian, to fall away from Christ and be condemned? Is that possible? People answer it in different ways. Some folks say, yes, it is. They choose to leave Jesus and then they they, they lose whatever salvation they had. Others say, and I'd be one of these others, that the Bible speaks elsewhere very clearly that once Jesus has come into your life. Once you have committed yourself to him and his Spirit's going to change you, there's no going back because ultimately your salvation was always all in God's hands. There was never anything good in you that you could bring to recommend yourself to God. He, he takes someone who's empty and he fills them up, and because it's his work, he's going to carry it on to completion. Now, those two views typically bring their own set of ideas into this passage in Hebrews and try to see how they can make this passage fit their views. I've been guilty of that before. I don't think this text is about what's possible, though. You can see how both of those camps are asking of this text, is it possible for someone who's truly converted, a genuine Christian, to fall away, like it's talked about here? This text doesn't care about that question. There are passages that answer that question, okay? And I believe that they answer that question with a resounding and consistent no. It is not possible for someone God has saved to choose their way into judgment and damnation. I think there are plenty of proof texts we could point to for this. John 10 28 is one of the most beautiful ones. The Father's talking about, or Jesus is talking about the Father seeing his children as sheep that are given to a good shepherd and that no one can snatch them out of his hand. It's beautiful as an image. But if you want more than a proof text, here's what you should do this afternoon if if you're really wrestling with this. Read Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8. Read the whole thing. I always think that that logical cases in the New Testament are so much more valuable to us than just one verse or proof text. Those proof texts are useful, but if you can follow an author reasoning his way out of a problem, that's, that's so much more valuable. That's precisely what Paul does in Romans 5 through 8. Think about where he ends in chapter 8. It's one of the most beloved of New Testament passages. And it's him celebrating the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. If he wouldn't even spare his own son, do you think that he's going to let your sin take you away from him? Do you think that anything on earth or in heaven or under the earth can separate you once and for all from the love of God? And Paul answers that clearly with a no. Let's just make that clear. I don't. I think that question is very answerable from other passages. But this passage just doesn't go there, and we don't want to push it to go somewhere that it's not trying to go. This passage, this is, this is the key. Please get this. The purpose of this warning is not to address what's possible, but to address what's certain. And what's certain is that anyone who falls away from Jesus will be judged for it. The text is not about what's possible. The text is about what's certain. Not about what could happen, but what would happen if someone fell away from Jesus. And what would happen if you fall away from Jesus is that you would face judgment. Let me give you an example. I think it's it's absolutely essential that we get this distinction about what warnings mean. For a warning to be true, whether the thing warned against is, is possible or likely is not relevant. For a warning to be true, the thing warned against would have to be certain, an inevitable consequence of an action. Here's an example for you. Um, You know how when you buy a new pair of shoes, they have these little packs of something in there? I don't know what those things do. They're, They're little paper packs about that big. But half the time they come with this like skull and crossbones on them. Warning, toxic, do not ingest. You know as well as I do that anybody old enough to read that warning is not going to be in any danger of actually eating those things, right? A child who can read and who understand the effect of the warning, for whom that warning would do any good at all, is a child who's learned enough to know that doesn't look tasty. Right? It's not appealing. There's not much chance that I, as a, an adult male, am going to chomp down on one of those packs of whatever's in there. But does that mean that the warning doesn't, isn't, isn't true? Of course it doesn't mean that. It is true. All the warning is trying to say is, if you eat this pack of whatever, you're going to get sick. If you eat the pack, you'll be sick. That's a true warning, whether it's likely that I would do it or not. And ultimately, the fact that the pack has the skull and crossbones just makes sure that I'm not going to do it. Whether, I'm, whether, whether it's likely or not, that warning accomplishes something. It makes sure I am not going to do the thing warned against. It is a means to an end. And I think that's how we're supposed to see this warning in Hebrews 6. The purpose of the warning is not to address whether it's possible for a genuine Christian to fall away from Jesus. The purpose of the warning is to make sure that genuine Christians don't fall away from Jesus. So places like Romans 5 through 8 tell us that God preserves his children and that nothing can take them out of his hand or separate them from his love. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't use means to accomplish his preservation of his children. He uses tools, and warnings like this one are one of the tools that God uses to accomplish preserving his children. Think of, it's similar to the way we think about prayer. One of, the, one of the most common questions about prayer is if, if God is in, is in control of the world like the Bible talks about, if he's, if he's sovereign over things, if like the proverb says that even the throw of the dice is in his hands, then why should we pray to him if he's just going to do what he's going to do? What good is prayer if it doesn't really change anything? And, and of course the answer is that that prayer is a tool that God uses to accomplish the things that he does. It's a tool that expresses our dependence on him uh, the fact that without him we're nothing and have no hope. It's a, it's a powerful tool to do the things God appointed to be done. So similarly, our preservation in faith is in God's hands. He would not risk the life of his son on fickle humans like us if he could not be certain that his sacrifice would get the job done. But that is a different thing from saying that God doesn't use means to preserve his children. And one of the tools that he uses to preserve his children is warnings like this one, like a little packet with a skull and crossbones that says, don't eat this, that that keeps me from eating it. We have passages like this littered through the New Testament that that say, essentially, do not fall away from Jesus because if you fall away from him, you will be judged for it. And that is true for genuine Christians just as much as it's true for fraudulent Christians. Any who fall away from him will be judged. I love the language of Charles Spurgeon. I came across this quote from him. He, he takes the same view of this passage, that it's, it's, it's a true statement, a true warning, that's meant to keep us from doing the thing that, that is warned against. And he, in his great vivid analogies, he gives us some great illustrations of this, I think, help us to connect with this point, on the purpose of the warning. Here's what Spurgeon said. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. That's what I've been saying the past couple minutes. So here's his examples. There's a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there's a vast amount of fixed air and gas, which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. So who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No. He tells us the consequences, and he is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe it leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed, and he stands far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. To recap, let's don't stretch the purpose of this warning beyond what's intended this warning, It's not trying to answer the question about whether it's possible for somebody who is truly a child of God and justified by faith in Jesus' work can fall away forever. Some texts do address that question. I think they address it clearly. I think they say no. This text, though, is simply trying to state not what's possible but what's certain. And what's certain is this. Those who abandon Jesus have no hope they will be rightly judged for their sin, and only those who hold fast to Jesus to the end will be saved. That's the purpose of the warning. What I want to do with the last few minutes we've got is try to tease out the effect of this warning. And What are you supposed to do with it? Even if we understand it, even if you're, you're cool with the way I've described it, what is it supposed to do in us as believers? I think it's really treacherous here. I think there's some very bad ways to use this kind of warning. So what I'm hoping for is that we can distinguish between ways we don't want to use the warning and ways that we do. Really what we're talking about here is how to connect God's promises to God's warnings. How do you see the nature, the relationship between God's promises, which Hebrews is just full of, and God's warnings to us? John Piper summarizes that relationship in a way that I think is really helpful. That's going to set us up for for what we're going to do in the last couple minutes here. Here's what Piper says about the the promises and the warnings and how they fit together. The point of the promises is to engage our affections for the eternal glory of God. That's what God's promises do. They tell us what's waiting for us if if we believe, and they stir us up to want that and to run after it. The point of the warnings, Piper writes, is to disengage our affections from the perishing glory of this world. The point of the warnings, or excuse me, the promises, engage our affections for what's ours in Jesus. The point of the warnings is to disengage, to detach our hearts from the perishing glory of this world. So how do we, if, if that's how the, the relationship works, let's be even more specific about how we don't want to use these warnings and how we do. How we don't want to use them is this. Do not fear whether you've been guilty of this sin, don't don't mishear me. Do not be afraid this morning that you have been guilty of the sin that Hebrews six talks about. The most natural response to reading this passage, I think, is fear along those lines. We want we initially wondered, could I be guilty of this? Is this me? Is it too late? It isn't possible. It isn't possible for you to be guilty of this sin right here and be worrying about it. Because if you're worrying about it, that is evidence enough that God's Spirit is working in you to keep you from being guilty of this. The person that this is talking about, setting the question of whether it's even possible aside, is a hardened person, a resolved person who crucifies Jesus joyfully. And that's not you if you're worried about having committed this sin. Point of the warnings is not to paralyze you with fear. I mean, in fact, just after this passage, what we're going to look at next week is the author saying, "I'm writing these things to you so you can have assurance." He wants them to have joy and hope. He doesn't want them to be paralyzed with fear. Far from it. In fact, all through this letter, he's been saying stuff about how Jesus' death is once and for all provided the only solution we need for sin. That he has done it, and the only reason you emphasize that it's all done is to give people peace and assurance and hope that they don't have to worry about whether they've done enough. His point is to make us sure, not to make us paralyzed by fear. Ultimately, fear, and constant obsession with analyzing yourself and trying to figure out if, if this is true of you, that kind of attitude and posture is just antithetical to the gospel. At its core, it's hostile to the gospel. That approach, that obsession with analyzing yourself and trying to figure out where you stand on this, it drives us to find comfort in what we can see in ourselves with our eyes rather than what we hear in the promises of God to us in his word. It drives us to find hope and rest in what we can see with our eyes in our own lives rather than what we hear in God's promise to us, and that is backwards. I love the way one of my favorite theologians, Michael Horton, puts this same basic point. Horton says, if we focus on our experience rather than on Christ, if we focus on what we see rather than what we hear, then instead of drawing us out of ourselves in faith, and our experience will drive us deeper into ourselves in alternating moods of self-trust, I feel like I'm awesome, you know, I got this holiness thing down pat, or despair. You get that? If we focus on what we see rather than what we hear, if we focus on our own lives rather than the promises of God to give us peace, then what that, what's going to happen is it's going to drive us not out of ourselves to have faith on someone who, who is not us, but drive us into ourselves, and that's going to us, put us on this cycle between despair over our failures, or self-trust over areas where we think we've done good. That's not the way the gospel works. This author of the letter to Hebrews would never dream of depriving you of the peace and comfort that comes in the perfect and unchangeable promises of God. And the promise is this, all who believe on Jesus will be saved. So let any fear that you feel, any conviction of sin that you experience, drive you to rest more fully on Jesus, not to obsess over whether you have fallen off this cliff. That's how not to use the promises. I came across this example this week in a book that that makes this same case for how we should understand Hebrews 6. In fact, let me go ahead now and plug this book. If you're you're troubled by this passage or others that are like it, there is a wonderful book that you can read. You can get it on Amazon for like 10 bucks. It's by a guy who's actually a good friend of mine has has had a big impact on me, a guy named Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner, he teaches New Testament at a seminary in Kentucky. His book is called uh, Run to Win the Prize. Let me make sure I got that right. Yes. Run to Win the Prize. It's not very long. It's easy to read. Get straight to the point on this issue, and it's, it's really wonderful. And, and he, he offers this example. I think this example helps us make the bridge between how not to use this warning and how we should use this warning. Take the example of a rock climber preparing for a big climb. Someone who's about to to go climb a big mountain like, uh, you know, Everest or one of those other big mountains. That person, if they're wise, is going to do a lot of research on what things have led people to fall. You know, what kind of missteps have been taken, uh, precautions that others should have taken that because they didn't led to their destruction. That, that mountain climber is going to be really careful to make sure they know what could lead to their death. But a good climber is not going to fixate on what could happen. The fact that he could die as he prepares for the climb. If he does that, he's going to be frozen. He's going to be paralyzed by fear. The cautionary tales he's going to look for in his research are useful for helping him to sharpen his focus, to make sure that he's taken all the precautions that he needs to, to make sure that he climbs in freedom and in joy because he's done what's necessary to be safe. But he doesn't fixate on whether he might actually fall, the likelihood of his falling because that would paralyze him. It would make him constantly second-guess himself. He would be fearful of every step that he took. He would be incompetent. Here's the way that the example the author of the example summarized it. Think of two climbers of equal skill who approach a mountain. One has taken every precaution and one has not. One approaches the rock face pondering it is possible that I will fall. The latter comes to the cli- or excuse me the other approaches the climb conceiving if I fall the consequences are deadly. You see the difference between the two climbers? One of them comes to the rock saying I might fall. The other one comes knowing that if I did fall, well, then I'm, de- I'm a dead man. The latter, the one who says, if I fall, the consequences are deadly, comes to the climb with confidence, guided by fear against falling to her death, a kind of healthy fear, right? the kind of fear that leads you to take precaution not to be paralyzed. The other climber approaches the same mountain with doubt and lack of confidence, controlled by fear that he will likely fall and perish, only one understands the proper function of caution. How not to use the warnings? is to drive you into an introspection that's going to leave you paralyzed and always afraid that you've been guilty. How you should use the warnings is to know that there are consequences to falling away from Jesus. So here's the use for these warnings. It's the same thing that this author has been calling for since the beginning of the letter. Hold on to Jesus. Don't let go of him. If you let go of him, you will die. There is salvation through no one else. It's that simple. These warnings are meant to remind us, to shake us up from our apathy, to remind us that what, it, what we live like shows how we view Jesus and what kind of faith we have, and that someone who lives as if Jesus and his claims aren't true is not someone who's holding fast to Jesus, and therefore he is not someone who can hope to have Jesus standing for him at the last day. In fact, he is one who is treacherously close to falling off a cliff that will end in his death. These warnings are meant to shake us up out of our apathy, to drive us to trust in Jesus more fully. They're to, they're, they're to lead us to ask things like, if your life bears no marks of the Holy Spirit, and if you have no joy in the things of God, if you're clearly not bothered by repeated <laughs> habitual sin in your life, you should be concerned. You should not worry that you've been guilty of this this you know, irreversible sin you should worry that you've never truly latched hold of Jesus because he makes a difference point is that there's no fire insurance view of salvation where you just sort of pay for it and then you check it off a list and you move on with your life Jesus takes hold of you the call of this warning is to run after him to pray for more grace and strength to fight with sin, to pray for love, to pray for change by the Spirit's power. Evidence of the gospel working in you is never something that should be used as a club to make you afraid or as a reason to, to wonder about where you stand with Jesus. But the fact remains that Jesus makes a difference. And if there's no difference in your life, you have a reason to ask whether you've really rested on him. Because only those who hold fast to him in the end will be saved. That's the function of this warning. May God help us, Father. We throw ourselves on you because we know that, that this cliff is one we all would go off if we're left to our own strength. Our lives have already given us plenty of evidence of that. And so through this warning, we are driven to the promises you've made to us in Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to claim them. That you would help us to claim them with hearts that aren't divided by loyalty to other things. We're asking that the Holy Spirit would renovate us, make us new, give us life and joy in Christ. And finally, we're asking that your spirit would hold us fast until the end. Without your grace, we won't hold fast. We know that. So we give ourselves to you, and we claim with great urgency the cause of this warning the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We are yours, O oh Father. Hold us fast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.